Hi, thanks for joining me. Gary Zacharias with the Apologist Bookshelf. I'm going to take a second look at Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. So uh, I did one previously, uh, one chapter, and I want to look at chapter four today. It's called The Problem of Evil. And of course, the idea is if there's a good God and he's all-powerful, why in the world is there so much evil and suffering in this world? Now, he says, actually, uh, Christianity has a problem with evil, of course, uh, but so does every other worldview. And he says, actually, Christianity does quite well if you compare it to the alternative. So this chapter looks at the philosophical uh, perspective of suffering. And he said, you know, the argument from evil never had popular appeal until after the Enlightenment. And things changed at that time when Western people came to see God as more remote and that the world was understandable through reason. And so people got more confident. They said, yeah, we can figure this out. We'll, we'll take care of it. But he said the, the odd thing is that modern people are more prone to conclude if they can see no good reason for suffering using their rationality, if they can't think of a good reason, then God can't have any reason for it either. So the idea is, well, hey, if, if evil doesn't make sense to me or to us as a human race, well, then evil just doesn't make sense. And, of course, we've heard that a lot of times before. So now he gets into the section here. Um, up until the 90, 1980s, he says, the argument against God from evil was considered to be just a slam-dunk proof that the traditional God of the Bible couldn't exist. How could there be a God who would allow pain and suffering if he's all good and all powerful? He said, but, you know, after the 80s, uh, he said actually it changed in the late 70s. Alvin Plantinga had a book called God, Freedom, and Evil. And over time, it said that a logical argument against God existing because of pain and evil, he said that's actually gone away. And uh, he quotes a philosopher, William Alston, who says, that idea that evil somehow disproves the existence of God is now acknowledged, he says, on almost all sides to be completely bankrupt. So now they've, they've got to come up with something else. You know, how, what else are they going to say? So Keller now takes on a section of this chapter uh, to deal with something called theodicy, which is trying to justify God's ways to humans. And so, obviously, it's answering the question, why? In this case, why is there so much evil and suffering? He said one uh, answer that's been around for quite a while is that this is a world of soul-making. In other words, we struggle against terrible things, but it makes us better as individuals. But he said, you know, that's got actually some weaknesses to it. This says, pain and evil don't appear in any way to be distributed according to soul-making need. So what's he saying here? Well, many people with bad souls don't have much adversity that they should have. And he said, many people who have wonderful souls get all sorts of grief and all sorts of trouble that seems to go beyond what's necessary for spiritual growth. And he says also, this idea of soul-making, it doesn't really account for the suffering of little children or infants who die in pain or even for the suffering of animals. So he said there's a more prominent theodicy, another explanation for the existence of evil. It's called the free will argument. So here's how it works. God created us, and he didn't want us to be robots or animals of instinct, but to be free and, and rational agents to be able to choose and to be able to love. So our free will that God gave us can be used to turn to God and uh, praise him, but it can be abused, and that's where evil comes from. So God is not the author of evil. He allowed it 
to achieve some greater good for human freedom. He values freedom so much. He said this is a very popular theodicy, an argument for why there is evil and suffering. He said it sounds plausible to people who live in, in the Western world. But he said there are two problems with this one, just like there was with the other one about the soul-making idea. So he says the first problem with this free will argument, he says that only explains a certain category of evil. So it, it addresses moral evil, but what about natural evil? You know, people that are swept away in uh, floods, and you've got tornadoes, you've got hurricanes, you've got earthquakes and things like this. And he said there's a second problem as well. He said he thinks this one's even more formidable. He said, is it true that God could not create free people, free agents capable of love without making them also capable of evil? I mean, God has free will, but he's not capable of doing wrong. Why couldn't there be some other beings like that? So he said, there's a final question. He said, it assumes that despite all the horrors and the evils that we've seen throughout history, just having the freedom of choice is worth it. And Keller says, but is it? Why couldn't God have shown Adam and Eve some kind of movie of all the terrible things would come to them if they ate of the tree? He could have scared them maybe and kept them from doing that. So he says, if God has good reasons for allowing pain and misery, they have to go beyond freedom of choice. He says there are other theodicies too, that, uh, for example, this is a world of natural order, natural laws. If we break these laws, they're going to rebound on us. So like the law of gravity, if we drive a car off the edge of a, a canyon, down into the canyon, we're going to suffer as a result of that. He said, but you know, suffering doesn't really happen in an orderly uh, way. He said, if people only got hurt when they did something stupid, like jumping off a cliff, that would seem fair. But we don't see that kind of fairness out there. And so to wrap this section up, Keller says, you know, if you take all these various theodicies, they do account for some human suffering, but they always fall short. And he even quotes Alvin Plantinga, who said, I must say that most attempts to explain why God permits evil strike me as tepid, shallow, and ultimately frivolous. Wow, ouch. Because I've done a talk on the problem of, of evil and suffering, and I've used some of these arguments. So that kind of pinches when I hear that. And so Keller says this, you know, it's futile to assume that any human mind could comprehend all the reasons God might have for any instance of pain and sorrow, let alone for all evil. And I do mention that in my talk as well, that uh, we're so limited in our knowledge and God is so infinite, it's awfully hard for us to figure out a reason, but certainly God could have one. He said, uh, actually, Christian thinkers have turned away from trying to seek a, a huge answer. He said, actually, all they're trying to do now, good Christian thinkers, are to mount a defense, which just seeks to prove that the argument against God from evil fails. And that uh, in making a theodicy, then the burden of proof is upon the believer. It's, it's upon the Christian. But on a defense, the burden of proof, why is there a God if there's evil? The burden of proof is upon the skeptic. Okay, so on the surface, he says that if you say there's a good omnipotent God and there's evil in the world, those two statements, they're not a contradiction. He said it's up to the skeptic to make a case that they actually do contradict each other. So the skeptic has to come up with an argument so convincing that the listener says, oh, okay, now I see if evil exists, God cannot or is at least not likely to exist. But he said people are not able to make a good case for that.
So he said there really isn't a contradiction between the existence of God and the existence of evil. The skeptic would have to somehow come up that said God could not possibly have any reasons. That's hard to prove that. In fact, we often know, Keller says, that suffering in, in people's lives sometimes brings about greater goods. Doctors, for example, they'll do painful things on patients and it'll bring about their healing. Uh, parents punish bad behavior. So there are cases where um, we allow suffering in somebody's life to bring about a greater good. And he said there's another assumption here going on. If I can't see any reasons God might have for permitting that evil, then probably he doesn't have any. But he said that premise is false. That premise is false. So the rejoinder to the skeptic is this. If God is infinitely knowledgeable... And that's what we think God is, infinitely knowledgeable. knowledgeable. Why couldn't he have morally sufficient reasons for allowing, allowing evil that you can't think of? And I agree. I think that's a really powerful way to argue that. Just because you can't think of a reason, why, why wouldn't God have a reason? So to insist that we know as much about life and history as all-powerful God is a logical fallacy. And it's certainly an egotistical thing to say as well. Keller says this, and I think this is a, a really interesting comment. If you have a God infinite and powerful enough for you to be angry at for allowing evil, then you must at the same time have a God infinite enough to have sufficient reasons for allowing that evil. Let me say that one again, because I think that wraps this up really well in this section. If you believe, and, and we do as Christians, that God is infinite and he's powerful, and yet there's evil, so we get angry at him. But if we get angry at him, then we must also have a God infinite and as big to have sufficient reasons that we don't understand, we don't know. So he says the, the idea that because we can't think of something, God cannot think of it either is more than a fallacy. He said that's mark of arrogance and pride and faith in your own mind. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Okay, then he has something, a section in here called, uh, subtitled the boomerang effect. He says there's an assumption in the minds of a lot of people that say, well, suffering weakens the faith of people. And the assumption is if God has failed to do the right thing, right? Somehow it's God's fault and we've, we've gone through some terrible times. When we say something like, I can't believe in a God who would allow this, we're saying that somehow it's God's fault. He's complicit in this evil. He says, but that creates a problem for the skeptic who disbelieves in God. It's inarguable that human beings have moral feelings. No doubt about that. But if there's no God, where do these moral instincts and feelings come from? Evolution? He said, well, that may account for moral feelings, but it can't account, it can't account for moral obligation. What does he mean by that? Well, what right do you have, he says, to tell people they're obliged to stop certain behaviors if their feelings tell them they're okay, but you feel they're wrong? Where do you come up with a standard where your moral feelings are judged as true, but others are as false? In other words, how can you say to somebody, hey, what you just did was evil. But they may have different feelings. They'll say, well, that's just your view. It's a problem, isn't it? The very basis for disbelief in God, this idea about evil, dissolves if there is no God. So he says, the ground on which you make your objection vanishes under your feet. And he mentions C.S. Lewis, who had uh, thought the same thing. Lewis had rejected the existence of God because he thought that logical argument about evil existing worked against God. But then he came to realize, oh, wait a minute, I've got the problem. Because I'm aware of moral evil, it's an, actually argument, an actual argument for the, for the existence of God, not against it. 
So what did uh, Lewis say? He said, well, his objection to the existence of God was that he could see no moral standard behind the world. It was just random and evil. But if there's no God, there's no evil. It's just a private feeling. So kind of interesting, isn't it? Planninga says a secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort. And he also mentions A.N. Wilson, who is a writer and a critic. He abandoned Christianity when he was young, but he wrote an article later in life called Why I Believe Again, and he said what was crucial to him was reading things about the Wagner family, you know, the great uh, opera composer in Nazi Germany, and he showed that Whoa, you get a mad world by people who think that ethics are just a human construct. Yeah, pretty scary stuff. Um, let me let me move ahead here. Um, he says in, in summary, he's got the right at the end of this chapter, he says, the problem of senseless suffering doesn't go away if you abandon belief in God. See, that's huge, isn't it? And, and I mentioned that in my talk. If, if you say... Well, the atheist objects to the Christian view of God existing when there's evil. Okay, take God out of the equation. All right, imagine there's no God. What's the answer for the atheist? He has none. She has none. All they can say is, gee, it's too bad we're going through this. So he said that one more time, Keller is saying the problem of this senseless suffering doesn't go away if you toss out the idea of God. If there's no God, why have a sense of outrage and horror when anything bad happens to people? After all, violence and suffering and death are just natural phenomena. Get, get on with it. Don't worry about it. Violence is perfectly natural. So he says abandoning belief in God doesn't help with the problem of suffering. He said, in fact, and this will come up later chapters in his book, if you abandon belief in a God, it removes a lot of resources to face it. And then he ends his chapter with this powerful story about a woman. Uh, it's a woman's story. Her name is Mary. And she talks about growing up in a house of alcoholics and the, the parents split. Her mom was terrible and did all sorts of things to her. She becomes a Christian at age 17, marries. The guy ends up violent and knocks her around. And so she goes to her dad as refuge for protection. The dad sexually abused her. And it just gets worse and worse. She marries a guy. Her kids, they have kids. They have all sorts of severe illnesses and problems. They grow up and they get influenced by the world. Uh, one was schizophrenic. Another one became incarcerated. Her husband had strokes. The finances were in ruin. They lost their home. She said, I could barely speak to a therapist. And yet she says, God has not changed, but God is changing me. So I just wanted to, to read just the, the end part of this little story here. She said, what I discovered about heartaches and problems, especially the ones that are way beyond what we can handle, is that maybe those are the problems he does permit precisely because we cannot handle them or the pain and anxiety they cause, but he can. I think he wants us to realize that trusting him to handle these situations is actually a gift, his gift of peace to us in the midst of the craziness. Problems don't disappear and life continues, but he replaces the sting of those heartaches with hope which has been an amazing realization. She said, I've come to be, uh, believe that life will not always be it as it is now. I even find more comfort being able to stop focusing on all the heartache and focus on the one who will someday take heartache away completely and forever. And she ends by saying, hope does not come uh, through a solution to the problem, but in focusing on Christ, who facilitates the change that she is uh, seeing in her own life. 
How powerful is that? What a challenge to those of us that have not gone through some severe things. Amazing. Again, this is Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, a challenging book. Um, Keller says, and I agree with him, that we should be prepared for pain and suffering. And if it's reading this book or other books, that's a great idea because if we're in the middle of pain and suffering and then try to reason what's going on, it's awfully hard to get beyond the misery that we're going through. So that's a, a great suggestion to think about these things and talk to other people and read some books and prepare ourselves because we're all going to face um, awful things in our lives, unfortunately. Well, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. We'll do another one soon.